This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Zwei Kwok, that's D-U-E-Q-U-A-C-H, is the founder and CEO of Calm Clarity, and she's the author of the book, Calm Clarity. How to use science to rewire your brain for greater wisdom, fulfillment, and joy, which is one of Fast Company's best business books in 2018. Through her social enterprise, also called Calm Clarity, she guides organizations to incorporate valuable insights from neuroscience and mindfulness to address unconscious bias and build high-performing and inclusive cultures. She also heads a second nonprofit, the Collective Success Network, to mentor, support, and empower low-income, first-generation college students to successfully navigate and enter professional careers. Zwei started life in poverty as a refugee from Vietnam in inner-city Philadelphia. She turned to neuroscience to heal the long-term effects of trauma in her own life graduated from Harvard College and then from the Wharton MBA program and built a successful international business career in consulting and finance before turning to social entrepreneurship. Her inspiring story is featured in The Portal, which is a new documentary film about meditation as a means, a pathway for healing and transformation. Zwei is one of those Wharton alumni of whom you can't help but feel especially proud because she's using her knowledge, her skills to do good in the world. So in this, the second episode in which she's appeared, Zwei and I talk about her remarkable struggle for survival and how it led to her discovery of the mental and spiritual tools that saved her. We talk about her role in the documentary, The Portal, and about its aspirations to bring more healing to our world. And I do hope you get a chance to see this wonderful film. Zwei describes the basics of her Brain 3.0 model, which is a clear and simple method that draws on both the latest scientific research as well as ancient spiritual traditions for understanding how we can use mindfulness meditation to strengthen the brain functions that keep us calm. And she talks about the growth and impact of this uh, the Collective Success Network. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast and that if you do, you are subscribing. And if you haven't, please do so now before you forget. Uh, and rate it wherever you're listening uh, to your podcast so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. And now, get set to be inspired by the extraordinary tale of someone who has turned adversity into healing 
for herself and for others, it's Zwe Kwok. Zwei Kwok, welcome back to Work and Life. Hi, Stu. I'm happy to be back here. And, uh, of course, it's always wonderful to come back to my alma mater, Wharton. Yes, yes. Uh, well, what's it like for you to walk these halls again after being away? Um, I would have to say the funny thing is I don't look like I've been away for that long. <laughs> <laughs> so once in a while, people ask me if I'm still a student here. <laughs> <laughs> and... How does that how does that affect those interactions when you're surprised by like oh wow I still look like a student that's good. Uh, I, I would say I think it's a reflection of you know these practices that we're talking about meditation mindfulness and mm -hmm. how it c creates uh, mental agility, um, openness, curiosity, and, and in other uh, studies it shows that it can help you stay young. You know, it helps your mm -hmm. brain stay young. It prevents um, um, the long term. You know. Uh, deterioration of the brain, mm -hmm. and it promotes the elongation of the telomeres at the end of your chromosome so that you don't really age. So maybe I'm living proof of that. The timeless, ageless Zwei Kwok <laughs> sitting before me here. Uh, it's true. You look you know, exactly the same, if not younger, than when I saw you last uh, a couple <laughs> years ago. Uh, I'm sure uh, you know, for listeners who did not tune into our, our last conversation, uh, it would be helpful to have just a bit of your background, um, your path uh, to Harvard, here to Wharton, uh, as a refugee from Vietnam, and to where you got to now. So before we get into your wonderful book, Calm Clarity, and this awesome deck of cards that I have in front of me, which brings these tools right into my hands in a very fun and useful way. Before we get into all that, tell us just a bit about your journey um, uh, and, and how you got to where you are right now. Sure, I'd be happy to. And, and let me try to do that while tying in the neuroscience to keep okay. things efficient. Um, so the way I look at life, um, we're constantly moving between three patterns of brain activation. And if you experience a lot of trauma, um, the amount of time you spend in these patterns can get very skewed. And so um, I grew up in inner city Philadelphia, um, having been a baby boat refugee from Vietnam, um, and having nearly died many times along the journey of escaping Vietnam and um, um, dealing with the refugee camps and the, the diseases that ravaged the camps and nearly killed me um, a couple times. And then, you know, when we settled in America, we settled in inner city Philadelphia, this neighborhood called Logan, which today still suffers from gun violence. And um, um, there's a pattern brain activation I call brain 1.0, when you're in a state of freeze flight um, fight, mm -hmm. and you're constantly on the alert for what can go wrong, um, and you're not safe. You know, And mm -hmm. in my case, I really wasn't that safe, right? At any point, there could be a robbery, there could be violence. Um, I was, you know, um, called many names, many racial slurs, um, told to go back home, that I don't fit in this country. And, you know, it just creates a sense, this continuing sense that I am not safe. This world is a dangerous place and there's no place for me because my family escaped Vietnam. There was no place to go back to, mm -hmm. right? And so, so I was stuck. And my parents, too, 
having gone through this journey as adults, also surviving the Vietnam War, they were constantly in a state of what I would call Brain 1.0. And this state sucks. No one likes to be in Brain 1.0, so most of us escape into this other pattern I call Brain 2.0, which is your reward and acquisition system. This is when you're very impulsive, you go after immediate gratification. Um, whenever you feel bad, you might turn to food, alcohol, binge-watching TV, shopping, um, buying luxury goods, um, and in my case, achievement as a way of escaping these negative feelings of worthlessness and emptiness and um, not feeling like people could appreciate me for who I was, but I had to deliver some value. I had to earn safety. I had to earn respect. I had to earn a place in this country so they would you know, accept me here mm-hmm. and value me. And so I became an A student, right? I was at the top of my elementary school. I graduated from Central High School at the top of the course. And in defiance of my parents' expectations. Central High School here in Philly. Yeah, in defiance of my parents' um, wishes for me, I wanted to leave home for college. And oh. they felt women, girls should stay home until they're married. Like this is traditional Asian culture. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but what if I got into the best college in the country. Is there is there any exception where you would let me leave home for college? And they said, there's no way in hell that's going to happen. So sure. And and I got into Harvard hmm. and I took out the U.S. news rankings and said, this is the top country, I mean, college in the country, because they didn't know what Harvard was. You had to show them the U.S. news uh, <laughs> I had to prove ranking. to them. This is the number one school. They've accepted me. Now can I go? Yeah. Oh, wow. Exactly. And um and they still reluctantly agreed. They they made me promise to be a doctor, which I didn't really know enough about. But I, I made this promise with my fingers crossed, realizing that it was under duress. And uh-huh. there was no way I knew what I was doing, right? Seems like a legitimate uh, <laughs> um, lie. And 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 so I, I went off to Harvard with no idea the culture shock that was waiting for me mm-hmm. there. Because I'd never lived in an affluent neighborhood or community. I was only only knew like my neighborhood in Philadelphia once in a while I came to Center City you know my my aunt ran a, a, a fruit salad truck right outside Children's Hospital that was what I knew about Penn right from going to visit her and seeing her sell fruit salad to the doctors and mm-hmm. nurses at, at the Children's Hospital and so I, I didn't really understand this world and didn't have much exposure to it lo and behold, I was dropped into Harvard, you know, alone, without any mentors, no one to guide me. I'm grateful that Harvard accepted me, but there was no um, orientation program. There was Mm -hmm. no follow-up. There was no support system for people like me. And it was... So this is what, 15 years ago, maybe? No, that was back um, in 1996. 96, okay. So... Like I said, I'm older than before, I look. <laughs> before the awakening that is that is that is come, that is now a, you know a part of university life in America, to the special needs of first generation students, as many universities like ours are trying to address just in the last couple of years. So this is well before any awareness of uh, of what what particular care needs to be taken for people who are experiencing the kind of culture shock that you were. Yeah, and on top of that, because of the violence and the traumas that I'd experienced, my mental health wasn't great, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I didn't have great mechanisms for coping with stress. I was mm-hmm. a workaholic and didn't know how to relax, and you know, I bulldozed my way through high school, basically, without my parents supporting me even, mm-hmm. like it was in defiance of what they wanted. And 
So when I got to Harvard, I didn't feel like I could turn to my family for help since I kind of didn't do what they wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. I I rebelled to go to Harvard, and (laughs) I felt like if I wasn't happy here, they they would just say, well, it serves you right (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you chose this, right? Um, And then with regards to the, the class at Harvard, you know, it was a time when, you know, there wasn't that much... I would say understanding and empathy. Like people say they wanted to solve poverty, but these are people who were growing up in privileged resources families saying that, mm-hmm. not people who came from poverty who said, you know, I came from these situation and I understand what causes it and it's not as simple as you think, right? And so hmm. having to listen to all this dialogue and, you know, the affirmative action debates and um, I just felt like maybe I didn't belong here because this was such a harsh, like New England um, climate where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and in the movie, you talk about in the movie The Portal, which yeah. um, we're going to talk a bit more about. You talk about suicidal thoughts when you were there, and in a very moving sequence that's a part of this film. Life was hard at Harvard for you, I and mean, it's been hard all the way, and you're thinking, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. And there's a, a wonderful scene in the portal where you're, you're sketching the bridge uh, over uh, the Charles River and, and narrating about your feeling like, is it worth it? Yeah, I, I remember being at Harvard and thinking, this is the creme de la creme. This is the top school in the country. Everybody who's here, you know, came here because they thought this is where it's at. And I came here and I was like, is this all there is? And the people that I met weren't that inspiring, to be honest. And people were very neurotically perfectionistic and self-centered and self-absorbed. The culture in New England was very standoffish and patronizing or condescending. Um, It was this idea that we gave you this lottery ticket to come in. You have to assimilate. Like, we're superior to you. <laughs> you know, that was the attitude I, I had to deal with. And and how would I be able to own my own story and the strengths I brought to the table um, coming from poverty when, you know, I had to take courses and mingle with this community of students who came from extreme privilege, right? So were there no peers or people with whom you could speak about who you really were and what your experience was that you could feel there was could, you know could resonate and, and grasp your 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 story and where you, where you're coming from if there were it was invisible so we couldn't find each other mm-hmm. there is no like batman signal to like rally <laughs> together right uh-huh. and and people it was taboo to talk about class you could talk about race but mm-hmm. it was taboo i remember going to the asian Um, Students Association thinking maybe I would find understanding and support there. Mm -hmm. But as far as I could tell, people were in Gucci handbags and Louis Vuitton stuff and talking about like really expensive like lifestyles. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think like they understand me. Mm -hmm. And at my freshman year, my best friend was a Taiwanese a student from a Taiwanese mm-hmm. family. She was from California, but they were very class, um, mm-hmm. it was the word, they were very snobbish about, um, her parents wanted her to go, to go to Harvard to mingle with people, you know, um, who were powerful. Mm-hmm. And they, her mom explicitly told her to stop spending time with me because wow. I was low class and I would bring her down. 
Mm-hmm. So that hurt. Yeah, I could see how it would. So how did you get through that and get here to the Wharton School and get uh, you know into the the world of uh, corporate finance or high high finance and ultimately now to something very different closer to I guess what you discovered as a as a means for survival sure well I would say I was really lucky because I didn't have it mapped out it was a mm-hmm. lot of um, um, it was an adventure of discovery when I went to Harvard I didn't know I did everything it took to get into college I didn't know what life after college would look like mm-hmm. I had no idea um, there's this joke a comedians all made that if you come from an immigrant family you have four career options doctor, lawyer, engineer, or disgrace to the family. <laughs> and I chose disgrace to the family. <laughs> All right, I have a lot more questions about that, but I know that you know listeners are probably interested in uh, like how you got through that and how that informs what you're doing now. Sure. So, um, so I talked about Brain 1.0 and Brain 2.0. And what I realized at Harvard when I was in the thick of my depression, I was stuck in this fog um, of seeing only the darkness and the terribleness of the world. And, um, you know, in Brain 2.0, I would benchmark myself against my peers. And I was at the bottom of the social hierarchy that I could never climb up. And I didn't even understand, like, what the point of living was. Like, was Mm -hmm. it about climbing up the social hierarchy? There had to be something more because this this was futile to me. And um, then I think it dawned on me one day that, you know, if I was going to follow the herd, I would always feel miserable. If I was going to let the herd tell me or society tell me what was valuable and do what was rewarded and, and live my life that way, I was going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. and yeah, It's true for most people. Yeah. And there is, I started to listen to this inner compass that said, mm. stop you know, comparing yourself. Like, there's a path for you, and it might not look like anyone else's path. You might have to build a path, you know, because it's not going to be um, in, um, the, the mainstream path. Wait, where did you find the, the strength, let me call it, the courage to ask that question of yourself? I mean, it's a weird thing about being suicidal is that if you're willing to throw your life away, then you might as well have the courage to live your life, you know? <laughs> like if you're willing to um, be that miserable and, and end it, then you should at least take the risk of defying what society wants you to do and and see how that goes because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that couldn't be worse than death, right? So, so you were asking... The hard questions. These, these huge ex- existential questions of yourself. Uh, and you found as one part of the answer, it sounds to me, the idea that you had to claim your own path. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so I became an art major. I wanted to learn how to make beautiful things and study something in life that I felt was worthy of, of understanding. And like, when you told your mom and dad, hey, I'm going to be an art major, well, I'm sure they were so happy to hear that. did not tell them that. Oh, I, I hid it from them. Okay. And then one day not they surprised. called me and asked me what classes I was taking. And when I listed mm-hmm. a bunch of art classes, they said, why are you taking art classes? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I became an art major. <laughs> and then they disowned me for a couple of weeks. <laughs> so you, f- you found art. Yeah, which I thought was very therapeutic therapeutic and healing to a certain point mm-hmm. because um, doing art was wonderful but the art 
world itself with the critics and the dysfunctional drug use and everything mm. um, was very unhealthy. Mm. And ultimately, I decided not to go into that world because okay. I wasn't a prima donna and I didn't have the social capital to work the gallery system. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I graduated from Harvard, I was unemployed, had no idea what to do with my life. And, um, you know, but what I had done was I had dived into brain science to understand what was wrong with my brain Mm -hmm. um, and realized that the way I was using my brain was creating these negative spirals. And I had to retool and activate different networks if I wanted to change um, how I saw the world. And so I had begun to rewire my brain so that the symptoms of PTSD, depression, and anxiety were no longer overwhelming and crippling. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't want to be putting myself to the point where every trigger caused me to go into suicidal despair, Mm -hmm. right? I needed to have more equanimity, more balance. I needed to be, be able to see the upside as well as the downside of different situations. And so I had begun to you know, do exercises to activate the networks for optimism, for hope, for joy, for laughter, and start to recalibrate the brain or my brain. And it was working. So when I graduated from college. What you now call Brain 3.0. Brain 3.0. When I graduated from college, I had no more health care. So I got off the drugs that they had prescribed. I got off therapy. And thanks to what I call mind hacking tools, I didn't relapse. And I was able to take that um, like new start and and rebuild my life. And I didn't have a job, so I asked my friends what they were up to, and I heard about iBanking and consulting. And iBanking, I, and investment I, banking, and that sounded like fun to you. Yeah, it, it didn't seem like a good fit, but when they described consulting, I was like, hey, I could use those tools like that consultants use to change companies because mm-hmm. like, I want to change the world. And I want to learn how to do that and how to think like a business person. Like I want to understand how companies manage themselves and, and how do you influence decision makers. And so I applied to a number of consulting firms and worked really hard doing the case interviews, teaching myself how to do it, getting coaching from my friends who were in consulting and mm-hmm. many of them did internal referrals. And luckily by January of the following year, mm-hmm. I had an offer with the monitor group And from there, through a lot of hard work, you know, I had to learn the lingo because I was an art major Mm -hmm. and and how to be a consultant. I I felt like I was faking it every step of the way, like I had total Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome. And that's why Mm -hmm. I decided to go to Wharton um, when I got accepted for the Wharton program. Wharton also awarded me a fellowship of some sort Mm -hmm. that helped make it financially more feasible to then leave the business world and start to build a social enterprise, which is what I wrote about, that I wanted to find a way to help people who grew up in circumstances like mine to become leaders, to connect with their potential. So we're going to talk more about the tools that you discovered and then and, and really uh, curated for your own use. But what's the, what's the essence of what you teach and offer and explain so vividly in um, Calm Clarity? So to use the framework I just shared, whenever life activates brain 1.0 and 2.0, we have the choice to self-activate brain 3.0 and bring ourselves into a higher state of consciousness, regardless of what's happening around us. It's our choice to make. It's our power to claim. If we claim that power, we can change our world. And what does it take to be able to claim that power? 
as you say. Well, that's going to be longer than a minute. <laughs> I know, I know. But it, 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 like, how would you describe it just in summary? In summary, I would say it takes um, discipline to uh, practice techniques that train your brain so that you can have the neural networks of Brain 3.0 readily available when you need it. Mm -hmm. So it's like weightlifting at the gym. Right. If you don't weight lift and suddenly you have to carry 50 pounds, how are you going to do that? Right. But if you're training brain 3.0 on a daily basis and suddenly you're in crisis and you need brain 3.0, it's there for you. So wait, tell us about the portal, your role in it and what you hope that film will achieve. Sure. The portal is this beautiful, this stunning uh, documentary that the filmmakers poured like six million dollars into making. I mean, it's, it's a work of art to help um, usher in a collective shift in consciousness. They want to encourage and motivate and inspire the viewers to get into meditation because of the transformations they're seeing unfold um, through the movie of these six people, of which, as you say, I'm one of them, mm -hmm. um, who go through a great amount of trauma and adversity and, and change um, um, using meditation as a portal to heal and to um, shed narratives and um, scripts and, and programs that don't serve them, right, to, to really look at um, life from a new lens and to reject the stories and the conditioning of society that really um, weighed us down and caused us to do things that sabotaged our own happiness and well-being. Mm -hmm. So it was a process of seeing six people learn to own their voice and, and their power and um, make a difference, right, just by um, being integrated and becoming a whole person and mm -hmm. not giving power to other people to tell them who they are or or what their value is in the world. And they're very different stories mm -hmm. uh, really make uh, it a, a very persuasive argument that uh, this uh, kind of transformation is available to anyone. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a high minded but inspiring piece that demonstrates the power of love and human potential to creating meaningful, sustainable change in our world. So many important themes that are evoked in it uh, about how, how one accesses help, how important it is to find uh, stillness in, in, your, in, your, in your consciousness, how I think most uh, inspiringly it's, it's, it is indeed possible to evolve as an individual and for us as a species to evolve. And I think that's the grand aspiration of this of this piece right is to help us to see as you say how um it is possible uh to you know by accepting our imperfections and the beauty of of our of our lives as they are to um to heal ourselves and thereby heal the world yeah well it follows um six people who are very different from mm -hmm. each other um you know, there's myself, there's a Buddha who's a vet um, from an inner city community, um, African-American, um, who struggles with PTSD from having been in a gang and later from um, fighting in a war. Mm -hmm. And then um, Heather, who, you know, is blonde, beautiful, um, national champion, like track star, 
who undergoes an injury, shatters her hip, and can no longer run and has to face why she ran in the first place. She was mm -hmm. running away from the abuse and the torment in her family and had to learn how to um, speak for herself and stop running from things and find out what she was running to, right? And, and to claim back herself and her identity um, and, and walk away from an abusive marriage that she had mm -hmm. kind of recreated her, her childhood dysfunction mm -hmm. in her adult mm -hmm. life. Then there's a story of Emma Dean who um, helps the United Nations create a meditation yoga program to address PTSD among um, the aid workers, um, the peacekeepers, and the refugees they serve. Um, in Syria? In Syria, Jordan, Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, then there's a story of James Doty who's a, you know, talks about how no one can tell because he's a white guy who's now very wealthy, um, that he grew up very poor mm -hmm. in an, also a, an abusive, dysfunctional, neglectful family of alcoholics mm -hmm. and managed to pull himself up um, as a first-generation college student through college and then into med school, become a surgeon, lost everything in the dot-com bubble, and yet realized then that the most important thing to him was compassion and how important that was not just as a doctor, but also as a human being, and went on to help Stanford found their Center for Compassion Research. Um, and then there's uh, Ronnie, who is a rabbi who has this debilitating stroke. He becomes paralyzed, basically. He has to communicate by blinking his eyes. And um, But kind of like um, Jill Boat's like, stroke of insight, the stroke... Um, connects him to the sense of oneness that he hadn't experienced before and how grateful he is now to live in the sense of elevated consciousness and though he can't really communicate it as well the efforts he does make to communicate lifts up everyone around him mm -hmm. and it was very inspiring and um you yeah, know especially his family he's there's some remarkable scenes with his wife and his daughter i guess who uh, you know the the love that is being expressed in those exchanges is really uh, it's very tender, powerful, and tender at the same time. Yeah, and so you start to realize that even though he may be in great pain, and and other people could become hopeless and suicidal, he you know is in this transcendent state, <laughs> um, which is quite inspiring and uplifting. Truly. Yeah. Yeah, it's riveting sequences and his voice starts to float through as a narrator about uh, midway through until you meet him and realize oh that's who is speaking uh, this man who can't move really yeah uh, but he's speaking these profound thoughts of appreciation and, and love for his his life and his family uh, it's really really an amazing story yeah and and it's all um, interwoven through these these sequences are comments from futurists Mm -hmm. um, who who talk about the state of humanity, artificial intelligence, technology, and what our trajectory could look like? You yes. know, if we don't change versus if we were to embrace being human, embrace what I call bring three point mm -hmm. and um, and how if we could find that inner peace that's within us, then the possibility of world peace becomes tangible. So, how can people find out more about this film? So it is an independent film, hasn't mm -hmm. had a major distributor yet. Mm -hmm. So if people want to bring it to their community, then you can use FanForce. So if you go to enter the portal .com, so again, that's enter the portal .com, 
Um, there's like instructions on how to do a fan for screening. Um, it might be a while before it's available digitally for screening. Uh-huh. And and of course you can always email the team if you want to do a private screening with like groups of like fifty, a hundred people. And how would people do that? Um, I have Tom Cronin's email address. So, but I think if you contact them through the website, they can also enter the portal. Enter the portal. They okay. Can, um, yeah. I don't know if he wants me to give out his email address. Okay. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, if you're in an organization that wants to learn more about the the value of uh, meditation, mindfulness training, and you know the remarkable experiments that are going on in developing AI from a loving point of view that are also described in this film as a way to ignite the conversation and and, uh, and bring these ideas to your group, your organization, maybe it's a church group or a family group. Or, or even a corporation. Or in your business, absolutely. Um, I would urge you to do that. Tell me about these cards that you've just given me, Zwei. Sure. So they are part of a new um, pilot. <laughs> um, we're going to launch a community outreach program. I'm calling it the Calm Clarity Community Catalyst Program next year to train volunteers who work at um, universities, schools, nonprofit organizations serving low-income students, um, low-income um, youth, Um uh, to use Calm Clarity tools, insights, exercises to help promote healing and peace. And and the inspiration for this project came from, well, just living in a community ravaged by violence. You may recall mm-hmm. over the summer there was um, a lot of shootings, and there was a, in particular, a quintuple shooting that happened two blocks from where I live, and it's along the route I took to walk to the subway to get here today. Mm. And um, and how how you know, shattering it was, right, to, to know there's so much violence in my own community and I, I need to do more to try to address this, but I don't have a lot of resources. I'm mm-hmm. not a billionaire. I don't, you know, I've been working pro bono building Calm Clarity for a number of years, building the Collective Success Network. I don't have that much money, but what I have is intellectual capital, mm-hmm. right? And so over the last few years, we've been sending out a, a a thought or a quote for people to reflect on every Monday mm-hmm. along with the mindfulness exercise. Mm-hmm. So we decided to package all of these, the most inspiring thoughts and exercises mm-hmm. um, into a deck of 52 meditation cards. And the goal is to sell 500 of these card decks to give 500 of these card decks away to schools, nonprofits, local colleges, um, first-generation college students to so- use. So if somebody buys one, then you give one away. Yes. Well, we're actually giving them before they're sold. So we're hoping okay. in the end that like... You can recoup some of your uh, <laughs> your costs that, in the that development. They're beautiful. It will all square out, right? Um, but you can't wait until someone buys it to help someone who's in need. To get it out there. Yeah. And so we've begun, begun distributing them to um, teachers and, and people who work at nonprofits and to students. Um, but the hope is that eventually all the, mon- the money we need to start the Community Catalyst program to, to pilot giving, like, I, I'm going to start, I want to make sure we have powerful two-hour training 
Um, mm-hmm. to try to make it accessible in terms of time, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, to train volunteers to use these tools in an effective manner, mm-hmm. um, and, and to have an initial cohort um, take part, provide feedback, give us a report about how they're using it in their workplaces to make a difference. And then we can then think about how to scale this program, and hopefully the CARDS will continue to, f- to generate revenue streams that mm-hmm. funds this work. And you know they're really very simple and inspiring. There's there's wisdom from the ages as well as from you, uh, with uh, you know that are accompanied by a simple uh, activity or exercise that allows you to bring the idea in the uh, in, in the aphorism or the phrase or the the quote from literature, philosophy, religion uh, to your to your own life experience in a way that's very easy to, to do and to see quickly the benefits of. Yeah, well, I thought of them as perhaps like a team-building way to begin a meeting, for instance. Oh, People okay. People could, um, you know, if you're about to start a meeting, shuffle, shuffle the up. deck. Have, if it's like 10 people or less, everyone can pick their own card, right, and then read it to each other and reflect on what that card um resonates in them and and by doing the practice together what does that how does that um reframe them to be more collaborative and insightful during the meeting itself what a great idea Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't take long to do that no i mean if it's a larger meeting then instead of everyone pulling a card you Mm, could two or three or four or something yeah you could have people share cards as a group. <laughs> How else are people using these cards? Um, people are using it to um, wake up in the morning and prime th- their minds to be in Brain 3.0 because when you act, that's what these cards do. They're meant to activate the neural networks of Brain 3.0 mm-hmm. so you can bring your best self into the day and, and be in, at a higher level of consciousness so you don't start your day in Brain 1.0 or 2.0 basically. Do you start your day meditating? Um, in some way, Yes. Because I think some people have this preconceived notion that meditation is sitting on a mat and, you know, in a cross-legged position and maybe saying om, om, om or something. But um, I like to say that uh, maybe I try to be in a continuous state of meditation, you know, 24-7 in the sense that I'm aware of what the story is playing out in my mind and when bring 1.0 and bring 2.0 get activated. And instead of letting myself be hijacked into these states of, of being, um, I try to pull myself back into Brain 3.0. And and to do a formal meditation set, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I kind of described, does help, mm-hmm. of course. But if you don't do it continuously, then you really don't reap the benefits. Yes. And so um, my favorite go-to meditation is the compassion meditation, which mm-hmm. isn't like what I just described. Um, the compassion meditation is about wishing good things for yourself and the people around you um, and all people. So uh, I often will be in the subway saying, may all people be happy, may all people be healthy, may all people be safe, may all people be peaceful. Saying that to yourself. Yeah, may all people be prosperous, may all people live in harmony and actually try to send that goodwill, that wish for the altruistic wish to all the people sitting around me in the subway, you know, and visualizing them blossoming and feeling that support and receiving that support. I did that for you when we started. um, Hmm. And for all the listeners, um, before I do a training, 
I, I send that intention out to the entire audience, mm-hmm. right? And and it it helps me to be in this mindset of interdependence, mm-hmm. of knowing that our happiness is intertwined, our well-being is intertwined, mm-hmm. and um, to see everybody as a human being who can feel suffering and pain, but can also feel joy and love and compassion. The wise man does not lay up his own treasures. The more he gives to others, the more he has for his own. The card I just pulled out of the deck, that's Lao Tzu, the great philosopher. Um, and the, the application exercise from that, really basic, essential stuff. Experiment with sharing the things you love with other people. Rather than hoard your treasures, create moments that you treasure. What a wonderful thing. If everybody did that to start their day or some point along the day where they were thinking, ah, the world is too much with me. I'm not getting my fair share. Uh, Just to have that that counterthought to take yourself a little higher makes a difference, doesn't it? It does. It reframes the way we see the world. Mm -hmm. Because I think when we're in Brain 1.0, we feel like victims. In Brain 2.0, we're feeling like we're running a rat race and... We're not getting to the number one position, and that angers us, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But in in Brain 3.0, we're like, oh, we see this rat race, and it's not that interesting. (laughs) Well, it's certainly not as as peaceful and joyful and ultimately productive as as a, a mindset that is infused with an understanding of human suffering and compassion. As you say, so so you you graduated from Morton. I want to come back to. We only have a couple more minutes left here. I don't know how we're going to get to this, but I'm going to try. You how you got to where you are now in doing this this work to serve humanity and serve yourself in this same way of you know continually trying to raise your consciousness. You you chose that path after leaving Wharton and doing work that ultimately led you to conclude it wasn't it wasn't enough it wasn't right what happened well i would say i was in a very privileged position after wharton um, monitor moved me to asia relocated me to beijing and i wanted to live abroad and then i got recruited to do private equity investments for one of the largest vietnamese um, asset management companies Mm -hmm. right we worked throughout southeast asia and i got to travel extensively and then i left that to do social impact investment um, for a billionaire based in Singapore. And um, through those experiences, I realized that um, if people are toxic, no matter what they're trying to do, like it becomes toxic impact in- investments, right? Mm-hmm. And it, we weren't really creating a positive impact. And that's when I decided to go deeper into um, um, Buddhism because of the Dalai Lama saying things like, there can be no world peace without inner peace and realizing that how we showed up in the world mattered more than how much money we had. Mm. And, and I was around toxic people and I had so much trauma in me. There was a lot of toxic energy in me, which is why I was able to, to climb the ladder and, and do the politics and, and, and be promoted. All that 2.0 stuff. Yeah. And pay off all my student loans. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was in a position of privilege and power, but then I realized that to get to the where I want to be and the person I want to become, I had to leave that behind. And luckily, I was financially stable, finally, right, mm-hmm. after growing up in poverty and 
having all this debt, I was finally financially independent. And so I gave myself the freedom to walk away, right? I didn't have any obligations hanging over me. And, and I took it, you know, I, it was a golden parachute that I gave myself, which is not easy to do. Um, but you have to have a lot of courage to believe that you can do this on your own and you don't need an employer anymore. You don't need a paycheck anymore. You can navigate this path forward. And all the training I got at Wharton, even what I learned at Harvard um, as an art major, um, you know, gave me what I needed to build a social enterprise, right? To navigate um, the mindfulness world, to, you know, pick and choose what I found had wisdom and merit and what I found to actually be a little bit mindless and bizarre. <laughs> so, so in the last couple of years since we spoke on, on air, what have you learned about what it takes to, to cultivate that kind of practice uh, as a social entrepreneur? I would say it takes a great deal of compassion for yourself, for other people, because it's not easy to navigate this world and deal with all the stress, especially the financial stress of building mm -hmm. your own venture. And um, to also have faith that you can do it. And there's going to be a lot of setbacks and dead ends. But if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to ask for help and seek help, a lot of times help comes. Mm -hmm. Right. If you're open to dialogue and feedback, you can make what you're doing better. Mm -hmm. I would say the first version of Calm Clarity was terrible, right? The mm -hmm. curriculum. Um, but thanks to the feedback we got from the people in the pilots mm -hmm. and, you know, other volunteers, like it's now one of the best programs, you know, in the space. It's very visual. We mm -hmm. use cartoons. I was lucky to have a pro bono graphic designer volunteer from Paris and upgrade all the visuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're um, fantastic. You know, we did a program for Bain um, consulting firm for their COO, and he mm -hmm. loved it so much that he's now a big fan and wants to support us. So, you know, it, it it's up there. Like mm -hmm. It's one of the best things he's ever seen, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm, I'm proud of what I've created. And I know in the beginning I questioned myself, and even now and then my parents asked me, like, is it time to get a real job yet? Oh. <laughs> you know? Um, they're still asking you that? They're still asking because they're scared oh, for me. Yeah. Right? They want you to be secure. They've known so much insecurity themselves, I'm sure. Yeah, and I, I tell them, you know, I, I can bank on myself, right? I can bank on the thoughts that I produce, mm -hmm. the cards I produce. Like, I have the ability to create value and create content. And over the last year, we actually created a new training in unconscious bias, um, how to deconstruct it using neuroscience and mindfulness. And everywhere we've run it, it's blown people away mm. because it, it actually breaks down why human beings have bias and how we can shift into Brain 3.0 to um, change the social conditioning and the associations that are developed in Brain 1.0 and 2.0. And and um, all the companies we've run it for, the organizations, find it extremely empowering mm -hmm. to know that you have the ability to change. Yes, even in a harsh, cruel world that can be, uh, well, just so painful to, to have to navigate. It's possible to learn uh, and to evolve, and your your life certainly demonstrates that, as does your your work. So 
uh, you know, it's it's the holiday season. People are you know barraged with a sense of stress and not having enough in their lives. Um, what's what's your one tip for how to make it through these next couple of weeks using the the wisdom that you've you've gained in your remarkable lives, right? Sure. Well, one of the tools we use to help people see the situation from Brain 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. So <laughs> there's an exercise we actually did where, you know, when you think of the holidays, especially shopping and Brain 1.0, you're like, this sucks, right? I hate the lines. I hate the consumerism. Mm-hmm. I hate this expectations. I have to buy all these things. And Brain 2.0, you're like, I want to be this, the best present giver ever. Uh-huh. And I can do this all efficiently with online shopping, right? You don't have to break a sweat or anything, mm-hmm. right? And then in Brain 3.0, you realize the holidays spirit is what it's about, right? It's about yes. connecting. It's about showing love, paying it forward, having these meaningful um, experiences with your family and the people around you. Mm-hmm. And that's more important than the consumerism. So much more important. It's really the only thing that matters. That's that's most apt and very welcome advice. Uh, Zoe, thank you so much for joining me again on the show. What, where's the best place for listeners to learn more about Calm Clarity and the wonderful projects you're, you're doing? Sure. Come to our website, calmclarity.org, and there you can see more about the cards. If you click on the shop um, page, if you want to be part of this buy one, give one um, program so we can start to change inner city communities in a deeper, uh, more scalable fashion in 2020. Awesome. Zoe. Thanks again for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope you found my conversation with Zwe Kwok to be enlightening and uplifting, as I did, and that it inspired you to learn more and perhaps to support her efforts. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Visit calmclarity.org and check out the easily accessible and useful resources there and see what you can discover about what you can do to create a bit more peace in yourself and in our world. I'd love to hear what you find. So get in touch with me directly at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for on-air broadcasts of Work and Life on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.